Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, I'm Maddie Orlando. And I'm Lauren Orlando. As you probably guessed, we're sisters. And we're also co-hosts of the podcast, The Sister Diary. Every week, we let our listeners into real-life conversations like the ones that we have at home. We have an eight-year age gap, so we always have a different perspective on things, but that makes it pretty fun. We talk about navigating life, growing up on social media, and pretty much anything else that we find interesting. You can catch a new episode of The Sister Diary every Friday. I would feel like this high, just like this energy. I would get super like this level of elation and I'm just feeling invincible feeling, right? But then when I would come down, it would be like the depression would be like super severe where I just don't want to move. I just want to close the shades and be by myself. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to Real Pod. It was so fun hanging with you guys last week. If you guys are confused at what I'm saying, I went live on the Real Pod Instagram account. And it was really fun. I was talking about the show, revealed a few secrets. We actually came up with a name for listeners. It's called The Real Pod Squad, RPS. So make sure you're following us at Real Pod so you don't miss those moments. But yeah, shout out to my Real Pod Squad today. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode. Now we are keeping the momentum going for Mental Health Month because today, one of the most legendary basketball players and pro athlete mental health advocates is here to share her story. This woman is such an inspiration and has made absolute waves for the sport of women's basketball and will forever be known as one of the trailblazers of the game. You may have heard people saying be like Mike in reference to Jordan, but trust me, there were also people back then saying be like Mick in reference to our guest today, Shamiqua Holtzclaw. Shamiqua is a WNBA Hall of Famer, six-time NBA All-Star, Olympic gold medalist, and still remains the all-time leading scorer in the University of Tennessee record books. And that goes for both men's and women's basketball. Talk about a GOAT. Now, not only is Shamiqua's impact felt on the court, but her tremendous advocacy and transparency around bipolar disorder and mental illness has been covered by ESPN, The Washington Post, and USA Today. 
You are going to hear from Shamiqua in just a moment. Before we get started, here's a little reminder to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen so you get that automatic download every Wednesday. And also a shout out to Kay Sarah, who left a five-star review saying, real pod is the realness we all need. Vic's authenticity speaks volumes. And I continue to have aha moments literally every episode. Keep up the good work. Sarah, thank you so much for this kind comment and review. I am so grateful that you listen, and I am ecstatic to know that you are having aha moments throughout the episodes. Thank you, Kay Sarah, for this review. I am so grateful to each and every one of you who tunes into this podcast every week. Thank you so much for spending your time here with me and my guests at RealPod. And I always love hearing from you. So if you have yet to leave a review, you can head over to iTunes and do so. And I just might shout you out next week on the show. All right, let's hop into today's episode with the one and only Shamiqua Holdsclaw. So how have you been? How have you been? What has this whole quarantine been like for you? Where are you at mentally? Oh, my God. Where have I been? I feel like I've been all, all over the place. Uh, you know, first of all, moving coast to coast, leaving California, moving to my home state, New York, right before the quarantine fully hit. So we had two weeks to sort of get acclimated and catch up with my family and stuff. And I would say it's just been a whole year, well, we say 16, 18 months of making adjustments. You said your home state. So you're, are you near where you grew up or just in uh, New York? Oh man, I'm 20 minutes. I'm from New York City in Astoria and I live about 20 minutes uh, away right now from Queens. It's been great just to be back. I haven't lived in New York City since 19, 1995 when I left the college. You know, I've been back often to visit family and relatives, but I really haven't been, you know, in that New York flow of life. Is it weird for you though that you're so close to like your hometown. I know for me, I don't, sometimes I don't even like going back home because I drive these streets or I go past my high school and I, I don't know. I remember like an old version of myself or when I had all these dreams and then you're here now and you did the thing. Like, what does that bring up for you? Oh man, it, it, it brings up some, some aches and pains because I think one of the reasons why I was staying away from New York because uh, it triggers me. It triggers me because some of the greatest times with my grandmother um, was spent here and she's no longer with us. And that was my rock. That was my support system. So I can recall, you know, um, last year driving by my own neighborhood and I actually have some cousins that live there, but I didn't really want to go see them. I just wanted to just go just lay eyes on the neighborhood. And I just started thinking about my grandmother and I got kind of sad, you know, I had to like really just meditate and, and sit and just mentally just like, talk to her. Right. <laughs> and I went to go visit her grave that day because it's like, you know, 10 minutes away and just put some flowers down and just let her know that I'm okay. But she already knows that. <laughs> I love that. So special visiting the grave and, and leaving a note or leaving some flowers and, and having that moment. I looked into your background and obviously I was familiar with all the amazing things you accomplished on the court, but man, you went through it as a kid having you know, a mom who struggled with alcohol and also a father who had mental illness. What were you like as a kid? Were you able to be a kid or did you feel like you took on some stronger emotions prematurely? Oh, definitely. The, the trauma hit. I was always, uh, you know, I would say adult in, in some type of way, you know, uh, making sure that my mom was okay. Um, I have a younger brother who's three years younger than me. 
Uh, when you have parents that are struggling with mental illness or, or addiction, you, you tend to grow up fast. So I was always making sure that he was okay, um, that we had food to eat and, and things of that sort. Uh, it was tough, Victoria, but one thing I can say, it, my parents loved us. You know, my mom always told me how much she loved me. My dad, they hugged me. It's just that, unfortunately, some of the family gatherings ended up with drinking or arguments or something like that. And you would hear it before you would go into bed or, or outburst. But outside of that, you know, I, I did feel loved and supported. That's why it was very traumatizing when the incident happened and me and my brother was taken away from my parents um, by the city. We had to go live with my grandmother, um, who's my mom's mom. And for someone to tell you, you know, to, to have those police there telling you, oh, this environment, you hear, you heard the word dysfunctional for these kids and for them to take me to a police station to have social workers involved. As an 11 year, 11 year old kid, I didn't really understand like what was going on. Only thing I knew was, you know, I have to put up this wall, I have to protect my brother. And they're asking me questions like, hey, does this happen all the time? Does your, your mother, your father hit you? And all these personal things. I'm like, no, they, they don't hit us. But for me, luckily, we have um, a really strong support system with my family. You know, we have a big family. And my grandmother, you know, came to the precinct and they allowed us to go home with her. And eventually after coming to do a home visit, they said, okay, these kids can, can live here. But I had a whole new environment I had to get used to because in New York City, I lived with my parents in a middle-class area and my grandmother lived in a housing project, you know? And, you know, I wasn't really used to that environment, but here I was going with someone who I loved, someone I knew that would protect me. Man, I had that adjustment period and I was really sad. Um, I, I started um, experiencing depression um, and loneliness and wanted to isolate myself. I'm hearing you describe all this. And when you think about a kid who maybe has these experiences and then you connect the dots of this kid would grow up to be a legendary basketball player, the number one pick in the draft. It's, it's mind blowing to think of how you were able to be so successful with so much going on at home and going on inside of you was basketball an outlet? Like when was the first time you picked up a basketball and realized there was something special there? My mom would go to the park a lot and like participate in different sports. And when she was like play with her friends and stuff, you know, I would um, pick up the ball and throw it underhand. I mean, I can barely touch the goal. That was my earliest uh, memories of basketball. And one day I just remember making it and I was so excited. Like I can see it right now. Like I was like, yes. And then when I moved with my grandmother, it was a basketball court right out of her, right, right outside her building. And my grandma is very strict. She's about discipline and structure. But that was the one place that she would allow me to go play because she could watch me from the window. And I started just going to the court. And at first, I was like, like I wasn't accepted because I was the, like the girl, the only girl out there. But my aunt had a friend who had a son and he would go play all the time. And we became really close friends, Andrew. So then the guy started, you know, accepting me a little bit more. And for me, basketball became my, like my coping mechanism. It was something where I could just go out there. I could play. It just gave me confidence. It was mine. You know, no one could take that from me. It was, it was my thing. So I just worked really, really hard at it. But it helped that I had an uncle who had like played collegiate basketball. And I remember him getting all the letters and also being in New York City. 
the Mecca, they, they consider it the Mecca of basketball. I had, you know, famous coaches like Bobby Crimmins, Dean Smith coming to my neighborhood. I would see these faces because they were recruiting, you know, male players around me. So I'm like, oh my God, I could be the first, like the first girl, like from the area to go to college on a scholarship. <laughs> so they would just recruit from pickup games, like casually on street courts? Man, sometimes, like during the summer when the guys would play, like pickup games, where it would, it would be like if they had tournaments and stuff, the, the coaches would be there. It was, a, it was like a part of the culture, you know, just sometimes they would be coming to do home visits or whatever. And it was like a big thing, you know, like this coach is coming, you know, to the neighborhood or to the project. That's good because you get exposure if you, if you weren't able to join a team or be at a high school that could afford to have a basketball team or whatever it was, that there was mm-hmm. still that opportunity. When was it that you decided to play at that next collegiate level? Was, was college something that you had always wanted to go to? I mean, did your parents go? Was that pushed on you by your grandma or did you just want to keep playing basketball? Great question. My grandmother was like really strict about academics, you know, and I knew that she said, listen, you use athletics as a tool. So if they're saying you can go and you have good grades, you know, take advantage of it, but just realize it's something that is going to prepare you for greater things in life. She wasn't even like, all caught up to the to the fame, you know, as far as the, the basketball part. Because in high school, um, when I decided to go to Christ the King, you know, um, success hit probably like a year after. So I'm in high school, like writing journals and stuff for like the USA Today. I'm on a TV Guide magazine. My grandmother's like, okay, but what are those grades like? <laughs> she, she was like unfazed. <laughs> so she must have been so proud of you when you went off to college. And I mean, three national championships is... I mean, insane. We, I dreamed of one, never got it. But three, that's incredible. What was your mental state like as a student athlete? Did you feel the pressure? Oh. Did you feel that of being the MVP? Oh, yes, yes. Um, and, and college is when I really first started experiencing uh, mental health concerns. Like, but it was just like, you have so much success covering it up. You know, I had, I'm playing for legendary Hall of Fame coach Pat Summit. We have... Think about this, Peyton Manning, my freshman year is on campus. So it's all this excitement. I mean, football's rocking, women's basketball is great. You know, I walk around, everybody knows who I am. So it's that excitement. But in the midst of that, I'm like, why do I feel so unmotivated? Why do I feel like I just want to sleep all the time? I was, I really started struggling. And I spoke to Coach Summit about it. I, I remember calling her in the office. She's like, okay, swing by. And that's before cell phone. I'm a little older than you. I had to call from the, the campus room phone. <laughs> and I remember hitting her up and she's like, okay, Mika, come on. And I'm like, no, I don't want to come in the office because I just don't want people to know that I'm there discussing something that was very sensitive to me. So she's like, okay, we'll meet outside down the block on the, the benches. So we go. And I'm like, Coach Summit, um, I just don't feel good. Like something's the matter like I have all this success you know we, we have success I think we just were on the cover like Sports Illustrated or something just like we're maybe we won another championship but I just feel really sad and I feel down and at this time I'm probably like 20 years old maybe 19 20 and she said uh, to me uh, Shamik well you have to figure out what makes you happy at, at that age I'm like is it like hanging out with my friends is it playing video games like what is it and I'm, I'm trying to do this deep dive but it's very surface and then I'm like, oh my God, I just, I just don't know. So she said, do you want to talk to the team therapist? And let me tell you, I, <laughs> I wanted to just run. I'm like, no, 
you know, talk to her because she will be around our team and a very pleasant lady. But I'm thinking back then because uh, of the stigma yeah. with, with mental health issues. I'm like, oh, my God, if, she, if I go to her, my teammates are going to find out. Oh, my God, I'm the captain of the team. They're going to think that I'm weak. Like all this negativity started creeping in. Next thing you know, she goes, uh, all right, do you want to go off campus? Victoria, I said yes. So I drive probably like every week to go to therapy off campus, like probably like 25 minutes away. And I started to see a change. I started to go. I started to open up. I started to talk about the things that I was feeling, trying to trying to work through and navigate. But it was like the sixth or seventh time. And I went and I walked in there. I remember it like yesterday. And it was dolled on the windowsill. And she said to me, the therapist, who was an amazing lady, she said, okay, today, we, we, so she said, we all have a childlike person inside of us. And I'm like, okay. And she started talking, wanted me to talk about my childhood, the experiences with my mom and my dad. And those things just forced me to shut down. And I, I remember going back to the campus. I remember going back to practice. Oh, everything's good. You know, because I had to create, I created this shift. Like I was uncomfortable. I didn't want to deal with it. So I'm thinking, all right, let me jump back into basketball and the mm. sport, you know, because that's the thing that always helped me feel better, you know? So I learned, and it, it just wasn't the first time. It was when my parents first uh, had to go to their program and we were taken away. My grandmother realized something was not right and she got me to go to therapy, right? But what I learned as a young person is, you know, you hear things, you're saying, oh, we're going through trauma. What happens in our household stays in our household. We don't talk about these things to other yeah. people. This is our business. So imagine me going to therapy as a young kid, the therapist trying to connect with me. I'm not telling them my family business. The same thing. I learned to just stuff it. And here I go again. And the therapist tries to talk about them. I don't feel comfortable opening up. That's a part of me I don't want to discuss. And so guess what? I'm going to stuff it. And I'm just going to move along and dive back into sport. So that became like my pattern. Did part of you also feel like you did not want to face it. Mm -hmm. Something I think of is like, I'm never going to stop crying or I'm not going to be able to bear the pain, you know, and you just want to keep right. it down. Was that a factor? Was, can I even handle going there? Yes, I, I felt it was going to break me and I was afraid of it. I was afraid of it because, um, you know, even right now, thinking about it, and um, I'm thankful that my parents, my, my dad lives with schizophrenic disorder, but my mom, she's been able to, you know, uh, be sober and have an amazing life and get the help from that time that she needed. But at that age, I dealt with so much. I, I did not, I, I was angry. I was angry with my, with my mom. Um, I did not want her around me. I felt like all of this happened because of her and I blamed her. So I just, did not want to just dive deep into that emotional pain. I didn't know what would come up, but I knew that it was not going to be anything nice. I was past that. I've worked hard. I have something that's my own. I want to separate from her. And, and then finding out that I'm dealing with these things. Can you, can you imagine like when you hear the word, um, like you hear something like schizophrenic disorder, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a cell phone on campus, right? So when I first found out that my dad was found like hitchhiking on the side of the, on the, side of the road because my dad had got me a car. I always talked to my father. We were very close, but I hadn't talked to him in like a month and my grandmother was keeping it from me. You know, she didn't want me to know. And I'm like, where's my father? I haven't talked to him. And she's like, oh, tell me what happened. They said that he has schizophrenic disorder. I had to go to the library, <laughs> the library 
to go read about this, right? And I'm learning, oh, he suffers severe hallucinations. They may talk to themselves, X, Y, and Z, erratic behavior. I'm like, oh my God, this is my father. Now I'm feeling some, something within myself, mm-hmm. you know, this detachment, this unwillingness, like to, to, to get out of bed. I'm just not motivated. So I'm thinking, tag, you're it. Like if my dad has it, I'm, oh my God, I'm going to be like him. So I'm, I'm struggling with that. I'm, I'm like, I just don't want to talk. <laughs> yeah, that's so fascinating. That element of denial of like, if I admit that I'm feeling some type of way, it's going to become reality that that's going to be me. And yeah. I'm sure the last thing you wanted to do was ultimately, even though you loved, you know, your dad, the last thing you wanted to do was become that. Yep. Gonna take a brief pause to tell you about two of our amazing sponsors who help me bring episodes like this to you each and every week for free. The first one is Aura Organic. Aura Organic is a plant-based organic nutrition company with everything from protein powder and pre-workout to ingestible beauty supplements. They care about making healthy living fun, accessible, and easy while harnessing the earth's most powerful plants to help transform your health. Aura Organic prides themselves on using the cleanest nutritional products around, and they've gone the extra mile to prove it because every single one of their products is third-party tested for heavy metals and purity, and all of these test results are available to the public on their website. On top of that, their products contain no hidden ingredients, so each product page on their website allows you to look through all the ingredients in a particular product, and you can see what purpose that ingredient is serving. My favorite product from Aura Organic is their Greens powder called Easy Being Green. I love me some vegetables. I always have them around, but sometimes it's hard to have them stocked in your fridge or if I can't go to the store that week. This greens powder has been a great and easy way for me to add more vegetables and greens into my life. In just one scoop, you're getting over 20 organic greens from both land and sea with none of the hassle. Their carefully crafted delicious citrus flavor comes from organic fruit and prebiotics, ensuring you will also get that natural and yummy flavor. So head to www.aura.organic and start your wellness journey today and take 15% off your first purchase when you use code REALPOD at checkout. But that's not all. If you decide to purchase a subscription, you will receive an additional 20% off, totaling 35% off when you use code REALPOD at checkout. What an insane deal. So head to www.aura.organic today and use code REALPOD for up to 35% off. Now, I posted about Osea on my Instagram recently because I'm obsessed. So I had to tell you guys again today about their amazing products, specifically the Andaria Algae Body Oil. It is a liquid gold color. It's rich, luxurious, never greasy. It's fragrant with this sunny citrus and top notes of sweet passion fruit scent. And you can literally rub this oil all over your skin. It is so moisturizing. I I literally have been obsessed with it. Max has to take it away from me. And on top of the products being amazing, the Osea business was female founded in 1996 and is operated by a mom-daughter team. This Andaria algae body oil is actually soaked and prepared in barrels of oils for up to six months before it is packaged in this beautiful, sustainable bottle that honestly reminds me of sea glass. Their products will literally transport you to the ocean mentally, which is another thing I love about Osea, just the smell, the feel, the packaging. It really creates this spa-like experience. They also have a salt of the earth body scrub I love with Himalayan pink salts. 
And the best part is that if you're interested in any of this, you can try Osea risk-free for 30 days and get free shipping on orders over $50. They even send free samples with every order. So get 10% off your first order with promo code REALPOD at oseamalibu.com. That's 10% off with code REALPOD at O-S-E-A-M-A-L-I-B-U.com, oseamalibu.com. So then you stopped going to therapy. You finished your college career. You got drafted mm-hmm. number one overall. And at what time did your grandma pass? Uh, my grandma passed in 2002. So she made it uh, with me, you know, got to experience the Olympics. Um, when I first went to D.C., you know, we didn't do too well as a team because, you know, you go to number one, number one pick, go to the worst team. And, you know, we started building. So she she really got to enjoy some great moments with me and, and, and really trying to learn this adulting thing, you know, being on my own, living on my own. And then it was like, poof, like the way she left, it, it was very uh, traumatizing because it was it was Mother's Day um, weekend and my grandmother came up. Um, she didn't like to fly from New York to D.C., so she took the train up, and she came, and my mother was there. And I'm like, everybody knows after the game, my grandmother always comes into the locker room. My grandmother left and went back home, right? I call her on a cell phone, and she goes, oh, I'm headed back. I just, it's Mother's Day, and I just wanted you and your mother to be together. You know, she goes, one day I'm not going to be here. And you and your mother need to have a relationship. You know, that was the last time I talked to my grandmother. And I, I, just, I just couldn't believe it when my mother, you know, called me to tell me. And it was like I was at practice and there's all these different messages. Everybody's like, get home. Your grandma's in the hospital. And, you know, my mother's like, don't drive. Fly here. Grandma's not doing well. But they had called. I guess they reached out to the team my agent and stuff and some of my teammates. And so I had a teammate say, oh, I'll drive you home. And then I'm confused. There's so much coming at me. And then I just remember my agent's like, you have a plane ticket, go to the airport. And I sit there. You, the average person knows DC to New York is like a 30 minute flight. The flight leaves, it's flights every hour. Business flights, quick. It was delayed. I've never been on a flight delayed. And I sat there and I just started crying. And I just remember the man next to me was like, are you all right? I said, I'm, I'm fine. I knew my grandmother had transitioned. And I, when I got home to New York and I, I went to the house, and my mother sat me down and told me. And my life was forever changed. You know, I, I didn't know what to feel, but I just felt so alone. And, and it's, it's like an out-of-body experience. I'm like, so sorry that that was how that happened. It's definitely chaotic. And it also is very the feeling is powerless when you just want to teleport somewhere and you can't and you're like mm-hmm. I need to get on the flight I need to go and it's mm-hmm. not in your control it warms my heart to know a stranger did say something to you because right. um, <laughs> it, it's the weirdest thing when you're crying in an airport and you know everyone sees you but no one says anything you feel even more mm-hmm. alone because you're showing emotion definitely when did you have to report back i mean you're playing professional you're the best on the team I mean, this is the reality of mental health in sports is they're not going to give you probably the months off to be with your family. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they told me, I, I, we had a game on, in, uh, I remember the next game was in Phoenix. And 
they told me, hey, if you miss this game, it was probably once I buried my grandmother, I think it was like three days later or something. And they said, uh, you know, if you can make it great. And for me, basketball has always been that space that, you know, gave me energy. It soothed different things I, I, I went through. So I'm like, okay. I, I always say like, it's like I buried my grandmother. I buried my emotions. And it, it was just like I was on autopilot. I went, I met my team, I played. But it, it was just, it was like I was there, but I wasn't. And to have them have to adjust to me, because when you go through something like that, you know, now that I'm older, I know people don't know how to react. Like, they know, like, I just lost my grandma. They don't want to say the wrong thing or whatever. But then you're thinking, man, like, they don't understand what I'm going through. And so I, I felt really alone, even though I had some great people in, in my, uh, you know, in my, uh, my support circle. Or whatever, but I just had to navigate and, and fill it up, uh, figure it out myself. That line is chilling. I buried my grandmother and I buried my emotions. Did you feel like your depression felt numb? That's kind of, you know, I think when I think of people who've been depressed and even from my own experiences, it's just a numb state. How do you describe what your rock bottom felt like? It's very numb. And for me, it's just, I constantly, you know, uh, that crafty little sucker, I always call it, is in my head, you know, just negative, 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 you know, everything, everything bad, you know, oh my God, this is the worst, you know, nobody understands me, you know, just the negative self-talk just really um, kicks in and it's just like that, mm, I don't care, I don't, I don't give a hell, <laughs> that's, that's what it is, you know, they'll figure it out, you know, why do I have to do this? And I just think that, Nobody, you know, that's the main thing is nobody understands what I'm going through. I just really had that self-pity, you know, knowing in the back of my head, you know, now that I know, uh, well, not then, but knowing that I got a lot of people who love me, you know, I have family support. I have really amazing friends, but, you know, it's just like, no, I got to run. I got to figure this out myself, you know, not opening my mouth and saying, hey, I I need help. Well, you mentioned the stigma before about how when your coach said you could go to the therapist, you wanted to run. I mean, the way that seeking help is communicated to us from society is essentially, Mm -hmm. oh, you couldn't figure it out on your own. You're a failure and you have to ask someone how you should do it. And especially as an athlete, athletes in general, but you being everything that you were and all the things you've accomplished you know, it's almost like you thought people expected you to have it together. Like people look towards you to lead. Right. Yes, definitely. And um, I'm thinking the first thing, my grandmother passed, like I got to be strong for my mom because my grandmother always like say stuff like, oh, don't stress my daughter out. We don't need to get her back to drinking. And so, you know, I'm thinking like, oh my God, like I got to help lead this family now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a child, you know? Oh, you're worrying about how your mom's going to cope with the yeah, loss. Yeah, my mom and my brother actually found my grandmother, so I'm worried about him. And so I'm always, in those, in those situations, putting people's feelings in, in front of my own, you know? Like, hey, I got to just forge ahead. And that's always, that's always been me. Like, hey, you know what? You can go through these painful things, but, you know, it's like, man, you, you have these opportunities, you have these things, you got to put your head down. And you just got to bully through. You, you got you to gotta just push through. And it came a point, you know, I'm pushing, I'm pushing. And then eventually, man, it, when I tried to push through, nothing was open. And I just got my ass flat back down. <laughs> and I'm, I'm stuck. <laughs> when did you receive a diagnosis that you were suffering from 
bipolar too, because I'm sure that brought you clarity in some way. Listen, so I've been diagnosed as a young kid. Uh, when I first started going, it was, it was like a clinical depression. And then somewhere in there, it was like, I had like super uh, severe anxiety or something. And then um, when I had the episode after my grandmother passed, it was like a delayed trigger. A year later, I was missing in action all on ESPN because it was during the season. They said I was suffering from clinical depression. Then they tried to like put me on, like say I was suicidal and all that stuff. And then it was 2012 after the incident in Atlanta where they said I, I actually had bipolar disorder. And with that diagnosis, for me, I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of frustration because you know, I've been blessed because I know this is not the case for everyone. And so I, I don't say this like lightly or anything like that, but I've been able to go to therapy. I've been able to go to, to different doctors and stuff to have the resources and to find out, you know, oh man, all along, like you, you've been given probably wrong medication. You, 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 know, you have bipolar disorder. <laughs> And this makes sense, you know, and then to finally get on, in my case, the proper medication, and that's not everybody's path. I, I totally understand that. To get on the proper medication and see my life just like transform and the color coming back because it was very dull. I just couldn't understand that. But then me being who I've grown into over the years to read about it, a lot of people that suffer from, you know, bipolar disorder. They don't, you, it's like, takes like 10 years sometimes to get diagnosed, diagnosed. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because I think it's a very misunderstood mental illness. I'm sure it extremely frustrates you when people use it to refer to people being happy and then sad. Like it's, that's not the full scope of what it is. Um, (laughs) But my experience, like when they told me and I'm on my medication and, you know, going to therapy and really digging, I'm looking about like my whole path, right? And I'm like, oh, my God, like I felt these things. Like, I'm like, oh, my goodness, it makes sense now. Because for me, it was always like, oh, man, like I would feel like this high and just like this energy. I would get super like this level of elation and I'm just feeling invincible feeling. Right. But then when I would come down, it would be like the depression would be like super severe where I just don't want to move. I just want to close the shades and be by myself. So that's what the experience was for like me. And I'm like, oh my God, I've really been experiencing this a long time. And when you describe the mania versus the depression, I can't help but think about how parallel that was to literally the life you were living, going out in front of hundreds of people on national television. You're the best. You're the best player. It's all about you. You're the goat. Mm -hmm. And then you go home or to the hotel. There's no fans. There's no noise. You're all alone. It's like almost supporting you in these highs and lows, right? Oh, oh definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I just couldn't. And there was moments where I'm like, oh my God, you, you're hitting this high. I'm in it. And it's, it's interesting. My, my college coach, Mickey DeMoss, was like, there's something about whole school. She smells that popcorn and she just locks in. It was like, I could just lock in. I can go play at a high level. But it was when I was leaving the court, I'm home, then I couldn't come down and I'm in my house, like, how do I, you know, get, get to sleep? And I remember a teammate saying to me, oh, man, you should just have a glass of wine. And this is when I, I wasn't like a big drink or anything like that. Not that I'm a huge drinker now, but, you know, I like a good libation. So I just remember trying wine and I'm like, oh, OK, it's making me kind of kind of sleepy. 
And then what happened was just like the whole bottle's gone, you know? Right. So now I'm trying to cover up those emotions and feelings and I'm doing it by like drinking. And that wasn't a good thing, you know, because now it's just, it's another problem like that I find myself, you know, having and managing, you know, it's never like drink has never been like, a, I would say a problem, problem for me, but it's something that I'm using to cope and deal, you know? There is one more sponsor I want to share with you all today. And if you're someone like me who has body soreness or aches, most of mine are lingering pains from my glory days as an athlete. You're going to love this. Now, my back flares up randomly, and this past week has been extra brutal because I've been on my period. But thankfully, I have the Ned Hemp Infused Body Butter for pain relief, which has been so amazing. It is a CBD lotion that revives your skin and supports pain relief with all natural ingredients that help stimulate blood flow. It has a yummy yet not overpowering scent and it absorbs into the skin quickly. Now look, CBD has become extremely popular in the past year, making it hard to navigate and choose the right company and the best products. But that's where Ned comes in. They produce the highest quality full spectrum CBD extract from organically grown hemp plants, all sourced from an independent farm in Colorado. And you can double check all of this right on the NED website where they share their third-party lab reports, who farms their products, and their extraction process. CBD can hugely benefit for sleep aid as an anti-inflammatory, as a natural pain reliever, which is how I use it, but also as a rich source of antioxidants. If you want to check out Ned and try their CBD products for yourself, I'm happy to share. We have a special offer for the RealPod listeners. Go to helloned.com slash RealPod or enter code RealPod at checkout for 15% off your first time order or 20% total off your first subscription order plus free shipping. That's helloned.com, H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash RealPod, R-E-A-L. P-O-D to get 15% off your first one-time order or 20% total off your first subscription order plus free shipping. You mentioned earlier, obviously not wanting to turn into your dad. And then when you mentioned the wine, I can't help but think of your mom. I (laughs) I have some alcoholism in my family and so does my boyfriend. And I've weirdly found that I'm really sensitive to alcohol. I don't think I could ever become that. But right. because I've seen it and I know it's in in the line, like I have a hesitation towards it. Did you or did you feel like, like I don't know, what was your approach? You said you didn't drink before that point. What kind of tipped you over the edge? Oh, man, just because I can just like go someplace else mentally, you know, and then it became like, OK, I was always kind of like, chill. I got along with everybody, and I'm, you know, kind of quirky, funny uh, you know, team comedian and stuff. But then now I became the life of the party. <laughs> so I have a drink. Now I'm like the life of the party. I want to go out all the time. It's like I turn turn into this different person. And it's like, now I got people who just love it. You know, they want to be around me. I'm not just saying teammates. It's like you're collecting people along the way. And then I'm like, yeah, oh my God, this is great. Because those people are like, they're louder than the noise that I have in my head. I don't have to deal with what's going on here because I got these people around, around me. Yeah. It's all about those distractions that keep you from Mm -hmm. once again, facing and turning inwards. When was Mm -hmm. the first moment you looked in? Like when did you, Mm -hmm. whether it was have that conversation 
or feel like you really were like, okay, we have to deal with this? Oh man. So it was um, after my um, incident in, a, in Atlanta and I found myself like legal trouble. I've never been in any type of trouble. And to hear my mother say, when my child called me, I didn't, I didn't recognize her. Like my mother said, she didn't, she didn't identify with the person she was talking to. But for your mother to, to say that is like really scary. And I just also remember um, getting a call from Knoxville, Tennessee, from a former teammate and also a reporter, Sally, Sally Jenkins. And she had wrote um, Coach Summit's books. And she's like, Coach is very uh, worried about you. Now, I was so embarrassed about everything because this is not like who I am, you know? And I did not have a, a grip. Like, it, it was just like <laughs> uh, out-of-body experience. and. Um, I'm like, oh, Coach Summit, I can't go see her because she's at this time also just went public about her diagnosis with um, dementia and stuff. So I don't, you know, it's just like, I don't want to bother. She's like a mother figure to me, but they were like, you got to better get down to Knoxville. So I'm living in Atlanta, never forget, just hopped in my car, drove down there, and I'm thinking she's going to chew me out, you know? And I sat down and she goes, you know what? Post call, we just had a bad day. She goes, you gotta, you gotta work on you, and working on you is getting rid of all those people that you have around you, you know. And you have to deal with people who know your character, people that love you, people that support you. That's how you're gonna get you back. And she goes, you gotta get help. You gotta get help. I'm here. I, I love you. And that was when it was a shift um, in my life because she was right. She was right. I had a, a lot of people. And when you go through something so traumatic and something so public, you really see who your real friends are and, and the people that are going to show up for you. And I, I remember coming back to New York for a while, just hanging around some old friends in my you know, familiar places. And I started to feel safe again. I started to get my confidence back. On top of that, I'm really going to therapy. I mean, I'm, I'm like physically going to therapy. And I'm also talking to my therapist, like on the phone, like once a week. And probably whenever I need it, like I would just like, you know, I had that relationship where you could just hit me up if you feel something. Because, you know, it's like this person was invested in me. And I, I, I just really invested in myself for once. I, I was not like lying to myself. I was not in denial. I, I really wanted to do the work. And let me tell you, Victoria, a lot of tears. <laughs> a lot, lot I of was, tears. I wanted to follow up. So what was the session like where therapists asked you about your childhood and you gave real answers? Oh, you're about to make me cry. <laughs> uh-huh. First of all, my therapy session, probably for the first in-person, or I was in New York and then I went back uh, to Atlanta. My, my therapy sessions for like the next six months or whatever, with me on the edge of, uh, the therapist was like, I was on the edge of the seat all the time, rapid speaking. Like she, she was telling me, that's how she like said that she knew like I had bipolar disorder. And she goes, I would just always be on edge. It was like a different person. And then as I started going through the therapy, right, she would talk about something. It was always like a defense, you know, like, no, but she did this. I was really blaming my my mother. Like it was just aggressive. 
to the point like, don't you? And she will offer different things. Oh, no, and then, you know, some, then I just sit back and then she goes, so how do you feel about this? Do you, how do you feel like people are going to view you now because of what you've gone through? And that was like an aha moment. Like people go through things. People forgave me. I had to forgive myself. So why am I so spoiled? Like, that's what I thought. Why am I holding my mother to this? Like, I got to let that go. Mm-hmm. Like, life is hard. It's, it's, it's a lot of great things that can happen and a lot of joyous moments, but you have ups and downs. And here I am just judging my mother when she was young. Like, she's she's grown up. She's gone to rehab. She's changed her life. Like, she's contributing to society. but. I'm going to hold her in that space. I was, I was wrong. And I started to, to work through that. I wrote, the therapist had me like write down like a lot of feelings and emotions, write a letter to my mother. And I wrote that letter, sent it to her. I went to go see my mother and talk with her. And we just hugged and I, and I said, I'm sorry and how much I needed her. Cause for so long, I thought that I didn't need her. I didn't need her. And I did. And then it's the whole thing about my dad, you know, like my wife asks me all the time. She's like, when are we going to meet, meet your father? And I go see my father every couple of years. I talk to him, but it hurts me so much to see him like that because me and my father were so close. It, it still hurts. It's something that I didn't know how to navigate or, or, or deal with. And I remember after that, when I went to go see him, man, I pulled over. When I tell you, I, I went to see my dad. It was probably, he lives in South Carolina. And I went, saw my family. His family's there, whatever. Went to him to his house, to sit outside. Remember, I had finished playing, right? My dad, so how's Washington? You know, talking about a different time period. And I'm just like, oh, you know, oh, everything's good. But, you know, I don't play anymore. Oh, okay. You don't play basketball. That was his question anymore. You know, he's talking about that. And then I, I sat there and I spent time with him. He was like, I'm getting tired. So he's like, are you going to go? And I said, yeah, I'm going to go. And he hugged me. He's like, I love you. And I pull over on the side of the road and I just cry profusely for like two hours. You know, <laughs> I couldn't yeah. drive. My eyes are just heavy. And I'm, I'm just like, oh my God, I just can't believe this. And so I finally had to, you know, I have to, I have to deal with it. I, I, I'm dealing with it at my own pace. Like I, I talked to him a few weeks ago and he's like, when am I going to see you? And I'm always checking with my brother. Did you go see daddy? And I'm just like, I, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, gotta work through this. I have to take my son to go meet my father. I am like tearing up at multiple parts of your story. And I'm also in awe of your vulnerability to share all of this. You've definitely come a really long way from the version of you who just wanted to run from what you were going through. Right. You are mm-hmm. now sharing that publicly with the world in hopes of, mm-hmm. you know, well, you tell me in, in hopes of what? What is it that inspired you to to take the mic in so many various ways and and speak this? Man, I just I just want people to know, like, don't ever lose hope. I lost hope, man. When I was in LA, like, I try to take my life. You know, I'm in Centinella Hospital in a damn VIP suite under suicide watch. Like, I lost hope. You know, I felt like I isolated myself but instead of just opening my mouth and telling people what I needed from them because I had a support system. I I felt like I just I, I felt like I I did not handle it right because you know it's just like. 
we all we can't navigate. We're 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 made for companionship, you know. Um, we made we're made to talk to others, and I just felt like I just tried to like shoulder all of this by myself, you know. And I just want people to know they're not alone, you know. At your, your toughest moment, man, you're gonna you're you're gonna get through. And I've I've been at the bottom, bottom. Let me yeah. tell you, the bottom. And I've I've some way had something inside of me that caused me to, to, to push forth. And I know it's my angel, my, my, my grandmother and my, my uncle who, you know, look after me, but I just really, sometimes we just got to get out of our own way and that negativity creeps in, man. It just, it just like hangs in your head, but you are more. And there's so many people that love you. And I know a lot of people that, that I talk to don't have that family support, you know, but it's, a, it's so much information out there today for, for, for young people, anybody going through this, like, I don't know if you know the first person that, uh, you ever heard my story about the first person that um, I found out that had bipolar disorder? It was Catherine Zeta-Jones. <laughs> Zeta, Zeta, Catherine Zeta. The Jones. actress? Yeah. And, and let me tell you, I'm up on there. I'm like, oh my God, like I'm reading everything about her. And I'm just like, oh, she inspired me. So I always tell these kids and people nowadays, now you have so many amazing people sharing stories, you know, and that's how we learn storytelling. That's why we, we love movies and documentaries. It just gives us information. There's somebody out there that you can get inspired by. I think for us as, as human beings, you know, we're all the damn same. <laughs> like when you're dealing with this mental health space, you know, and one thing we have to move with is kindness and have empathy, man, because people are carrying around some heavy stuff. Yes. Like heavy stuff. Yes. I could not agree more that everyone is going through something. Everyone just wants to be loved. Everyone just wants to be loved. Even the people who act like they don't need anyone. I I love that you just brought that up. I do want to ask before we wrap, because I've actually never interviewed anyone who was open about their bipolar and had someone Mm -hmm. on to talk about this. So Mm -hmm. obviously you have to take medicine every day. Obviously, there is a great stigma that comes along with this illness and diagnosis. How do you rationalize it? How do you view it in your own mind? What keeps you taking your medicine every day? Mm -hmm. I know it's difficult for people to accept that it's this weird thing, right? Like for me to be me, I need Mm -hmm. medicine. And a lot of people don't want to do that. Right. I was in denial about it first, but I saw... when When the therapist told me and she had talked to my psychiatrist and she's like, okay talk to them and they gave me medicine and I started to take it. I started to really like level out. But the thing from medication before is like, you don't want to ever or like really feel like you're not yourself. You know, I remember my dad saying that he's like, Oh, like many, many years ago, it's like oh, medication. It, it just makes me sick. And so when it makes you sick like that, a lot of people, you know, run away from it. So I know for me, I, it, it really leveled me out. And so I just thought like, man, life is good. It's colorful. I want to be the best person I can be. I want to be the best wife, daughter, mother. And if this is what it takes, I got to do this. But I do hate that people think when you say bipolar that you're like, like you said, happy, sad, like, like I'm feeling all, all of this. Yes, I, get, I can get stimulated very, very quick, especially if I'm not on my medication. So for me personally, something like coffee, I'm drinking some coffee now, um, that drinking a lot of that, that can take you to a different level just naturally, right? So a person that like myself, I realized early on with my bipolar is that, man, like make sure I take my medicine and start the coffee will have me (laughs) 
somewhere else and then I come back down and I'm like, all right. But I, I guess now that I've lived with it for over all these years, I can tell when my mood's a little off. And I think a, a thing that I've done too is being honest with myself, but also with my close friends, right? So my friends are hilarious. They're like, if they see me a little too hot, they're like, hey, um, Meek, you take your medicine? And the old me before doing the work would have been like, man, like, leave me alone. I'm not talking to no one. Like, I'm not hanging with them. But the new me is like, oh, my God, my friends, I've educated them, you know? People think that you can't do the work, too. That's the thing. They, it's just like, this is negative connotation with this. You say bipolar, and they're just like, oh, this is an erratic person, which is not the case. You know, I've met, you know, neuroscientists, some amazing, smart people doing amazing things that have been diagnosed with um, bipolar dis- disorder. But people have to realize, like, mental health as, as a whole, it's just a spectrum, you know, it's just things just hit people differently. And the thing is, we just have to like talk about it. If you're struggling, you know, like again, get some help, you know, it's not a, it's not a death sentence, you know, it definitely isn't. Uh, yeah. It's not a death sentence and mental health is something everyone has. Obviously mental illness is a different, different thing, mm-hmm. but in general, right. we all have a mind, we all have a brain, we all have our well being, and it just has to stop being overlooked. And, you know, you talk about how Catherine Zeta-Jones was an inspiration for you, but even for me to have known your story and and your legend is so inspiring. And obviously to see everything that you do now and to have gotten the honor to speak with you. Thanks for trusting me and for being so open. And thank you, Victoria. I mean, all the amazing things that you're doing and having a platform for people to share and for people to grow and come together. That's pretty remarkable young lady. I can say that. I'm a little older. (laughs) Thank you for everything that you're doing because it's so, so important. And there's very few people who are being as candid as you are about mental illness. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of RealPod. If this hit home or helped you in some way, send it to a friend, a teammate, roomie, share the love, share the realness. New episodes of RealPod come out every single Wednesday. So make sure you are subscribed to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To leave a rating or review of the show, head to iTunes and let me know what you think. I love hearing from you. Not to mention, you can stay connected with RealPod throughout the week, seeing behind the scenes info and sneak previews of upcoming guests by following the at RealPod account on Instagram. All information about today's show and guests will be linked in the description of this episode. Thanks again for listening. I love you guys so, so much. Let's go dominate the day. And as always, keep it real.